It's Monday. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. Caitlin is on assignment this week. I've got my buddy Phil Mattingly here. Thanks for making the trip up from D.C. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me out of the White House. There you a big, go. Big morning. And I'm you free. get to sleep in a bed alone without four children. <laughs> I should be making breakfast right now. I'm not, so this is good. Dad will be back soon, guys. All right, well, let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, May 8th. It was a weekend of tragedy in Texas. We're getting new details about the gunman who killed eight people and wounded at least seven others at a Texas outlet mall. Authorities are looking into whether he was driven by right-wing extremism and white supremacy, how a patch on his vest, his tactical vest, may tie into all of this. Also in Texas, eight people are dead this morning after an SUV slammed into a crowd of migrants waiting at a bus stop outside of a shelter. The driver is under arrest and police say he is not cooperating this morning. A new protest over the subway chokehold death of Jordan Neely. Police have arrested 13 people so far and the NYPD says it's looking for six more. Wanted for jumping onto the tracks and debt ceiling deadlock. The Treasury Secretary warning of catastrophe if Congress doesn't act soon as President Biden prepares to meet with congressional leaders tomorrow. And it is the final day of King Charles's coronation festivities marked by the big help out. That's right, people don't have to go to work today. Instead, they're asked to volunteer. Moments from now, Prince William and Princess Kate will volunteer with local scouts after they rocked out last night with Katy Perry in a fabulous gold dress and Lionel Richie. We've got all that ahead. CNN This Morning starts right now. So we do begin with that tragedy out of yeah. Texas this weekend. Investigators this morning looking into far-right extremism as a possible motive for the killer who murdered eight people at a Texas outlet mall on Saturday afternoon. A senior law enforcement source tells CNN the gunman had an extensive social media presence online with lots of neo-Nazi and white supremacist posts. A photo obtained by CNN shows the shooter on the ground after police, a police officer shot and killed him. And you see that he's wearing a black tactical vest and gear. And CNN source says that he had a patch on that tactical vest with the letters RWDS. Now, why does that matter? Because police believe that stands for Right Wing Death Squad. Extremists have been known to wear that insignia at rallies. So let's go to our senior national uh, correspondent, Ed Lavendera, who has been following this tragedy. Ed, what else have you learned that you can tell us this morning? Good morning, Poppy. Well, despite those details that we've been able to gather from sources, investigators here in Allen, Texas, have largely refused to answer any questions about this investigation. That, as witnesses and survivors struggle to come to terms with the evil they witnessed here on Saturday afternoon. They come to leave flowers and reflect in front of a makeshift memorial honoring the shooting victims just outside the outlet mall in Allen, Texas. Where on Saturday, a gunman opened fire, killing at least eight and injuring seven others. It was the most terrifying moment of my life. The Texas Department of Public Safety identified the suspect as 33-year-old Mauricio Garcia. Police searched his home in Dallas Saturday night. Neighbors tell CNN they saw police searching his parents' home in Dallas Saturday night. Garcia had been living in some form of temporary housing, according to a senior law enforcement source. Nothing ever showed me any signs of, hey, this guy seems to be the kind of guy that, you know, would, would do what he did. A neighbor described Garcia as someone who kept to himself a loner and worked as a security guard. 
As investigators continue combing the shooting scene, CNN has been able to determine the approximate path of the gunman's rampage using images and witness interviews. He is first seen getting out of his car in the parking lot near the H&M store where he begins firing. He pretty much was walking down the sidewalk and he was just like blazing for the most part and just shooting his gun. According to witnesses, he then made his way to the northeast corner of the mall building. Bill McLean was in a cosmetics store there. He's not running, but he's kind of in a, a deliberate assault type move. And he either had a, an M16 or an M4 carbine uh, and he was firing. He shot about four or five shots as he proceeded toward the hamburger place. The attack ended when a police officer shot and killed the suspect in front of a burger shop. Amazing grace. Sunday afternoon, hundreds gathered at Cottonwood Creek Baptist Church, including Texas Governor Greg Abbott, along with state and city officials. We offer our sincere sympathy to the victims and their families. It's a community seeking answers. I feel that it sort of brought us together. The family of Christian LaCour identified the 20-year-old as one of the eight victims killed. He worked as a mall security guard. He was the kindest and sweetest, most caring man you'd ever interact with. He was just the kind of person who would walk into the store and everyone in the room would light up because he was there. Poppy, we made several attempts on Sunday to reach out to the suspect, Mauricio Garcia's uh, family that lives in Dallas, but uh, they refused to answer uh, any questions from, from us. Um, and here, uh, you know, we continue to try to gather more information as to, uh, given the suspect's background and what the motivation was and what brought him here to this outlet mall in this Dallas suburb. Poppy? And Ed, obviously, a lot of attention goes to the motive and, you know, the killer, but the victims, we only have the names of two of eight this morning. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Uh, so far, uh, two, two of the eight, and we really don't know much about them. As, again, you know, as I said off the top, investigators uh, have been very uh, reluctant for uh, some reason that we don't know at this point to answer any questions or to share those details about the uh, the, the, the victims in this case. And as you get their names and learn more about them, please bring that to us. Thank you for the reporting. And also happening in Texas this morning, a horrific weekend in the state. The, the death toll rising to eight after an SUV plowed into a group of people outside a homeless shelter in Brownsville, Texas. The driver was injured and taken to a hospital. Police say he has not been cooperating. The shelter had been housing migrants. Thousands have come to the city with a pandemic-era expulsion policy coming to an end in just a couple of days. We'll take you live to Brownsville, Texas, in moments. Back here in New York, protests over the death of Jordan Neely are intensifying and even spilling onto subway tracks. The homeless street artist died Monday after he was put in a chokehold on the subway. He reportedly had been shouting at passengers beforehand. We've also learned the identity of the man who held Neely in that chokehold. His attorneys identify him as a 24-year-old Marine veteran. His name, Daniel Penny. Omar Jimenez joins us live from an Upper East Side subway station where protests are so intense they actually affected the train service on Saturday. Omar, what can you tell us? Yeah, Poppy, 13 people were arrested after these protests spilled onto the subway tracks at the station behind me as the train was actually coming towards them and the train had to stop. And a spokesperson for the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA, says 
train of about 450 passengers couldn't move forward for about an hour as they cleared those subway tracks. And they're among what have been the relatively small but scattered protests over the killing of Jordan Neely. Now, the New York City Transit president called these protests reckless and dangerous, but also said it's part of a statement, while peaceful protest has always been part of American fabric, endangering transit workers and other responders, while also delaying New Yorkers just trying to get where they need to go by deliberately risking contact with an electrified third rail is unacceptable. What's the latest, Omar, on the, the investigation? There obviously is yeah. a big debate and legal questions here over does this person get charged? And if they do get charged, what do they get charged with? Any answers this morning? Yeah, Poppy. So, of course, that's the big debate. You mentioned uh, one of the bigger pieces of news that the person who put Jordan Neely in a chokehold was identified as 24-year-old Daniel Penny. And his attorney says that his client was just trying to protect people on the train and could not have foreseen this ending in death. Now, protesters and many others disagree with that. Many others who want to see him charged. The district attorney's office here in Manhattan says they're continuing to review evidence as we await any potential decision. But attorneys for the Neely family say that we can't have someone dying on our subway floors, as of course they are among the many who are calling for charges in this case. But bottom line, Poppy, we are still waiting to see. Omar, thank you for that reporting very much. And also this morning, closing arguments are set to begin in the civil battery and defamation trial against former President Donald Trump. E. Jean Carroll alleges Trump raped her in a department store in 1996 and then defamed her when he denied that claim. Trump has denied all wrongdoing. Now, Carroll's legal team presented 11 witnesses in her case, including Carroll herself, over the seven trial days. Trump did not put on a defense and has decided not to testify after the judge gave him a Sunday deadline to change his mind. Jury deliberations are expected to begin on Tuesday. 43 Republican senators coming together Refusing to raise the debt limit without cutting spending. We'll have the latest on negotiations and the impact on not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy if they can't reach a deal. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And new this morning, President Biden is proposing a new rule that would force airlines to pay up if they delay or cancel your flight. Details on that ahead. Mm. The last thing this country needs, after all we've been through, is a manufactured crisis, and that's what this is, a manufactured crisis. And that's what it is from beginning to end. It's a manufactured crisis driven by the MAGA Republicans in the Congress. Tomorrow, President Biden will meet at the White House with the four congressional leaders he's invited as the clock ticks toward a possible debt default in less than a month. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that could come as soon as June 1st if Congress does not act and raise the debt ceiling like it has done more than 70 times before. The White House has warned the default could wipe out 8 million jobs if it is sustained for several months. It could also tank the stock market. Phil, you're usually in Washington where they are arguing and sometimes working to get a deal done. Yeah, sometimes, almost always figuring out a way. I think the problem at this yeah. point in time is we don't actually know what the pathway to figuring things out is. And I think that apathy to some degree is what's most concerning. Let's start again on that calendar. We're just showing you the countdown clock. This is ominous. Right now, it's May 8th. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said as soon as June 1st, the Treasury Department may no longer be able to pay its bills. The United States is a very liquid country. That shouldn't be a problem unless you have a statute that requires you to raise the debt limit. Now, here's the issue. Some lawmakers, some Republicans saying June 1st can't possibly be real. That's just a made up pressure filled deadline. Well, this is what the Treasury Secretary said on Sunday. Early June is when we project that we will run out of cash and there is a chance it could be as early as June 1st. Of course, there is a lot of uncertainty and I plan to update Congress as new information uh, becomes available, but that's still our current thinking. Obviously, those updates will be closely watched. What else will be closely watched? This meeting on Tuesday. Now, keep in mind, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden met a little over 100 days ago to start laying the groundwork for this moment. They have not really spoken since. And that, of course, is a problem, a problem that Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said needs to be addressed. The president, though, making clear because of their negotiating positions, a one to one meeting isn't going to work. So he invited all four congressional leaders on Tuesday in the Oval Office. You will have President Biden. You have Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. These are the power players, the most important people in the room. Who matters most out of all of them? These two, right here, the Speaker and the President. Right now, completely at odds. How at odds are they? Well, here's the kind of the parameters of what each side wants for their deal. The White House, Congressional Democrats, very aligned, very unified, and have been very clear. They want a clean debt ceiling increase. Then they are more than happy to have a discussion about setting up a framework for spending and debt negotiations. House Republicans kind of surprising everybody passing their own legislation that would raise the debt ceiling about $1.5 trillion, but would also include $4.8 trillion in deficit reduction, permitting reform, regulatory overhauls, ends the student loan cancellation from the Biden administration. It's kind of an agenda wish list to some degree, but it got something across the finish line. That means they have a negotiating position, some leverage. Here's some other leverage that they have. 43 Republican senators. Now, behind the scenes, there's some thought at some point, perhaps the White House could work with the Republican senators, figure out a pathway forward through that chamber, jam House Republicans. 43 senators vowing to oppose debt ceiling increases without spending cuts. That is a significant escalation in advance of the meeting. What else is? President Biden, on Wednesday, the day after the meeting, he'll be traveling to New York to give a speech about the debt limit and about his position on the debt limit. Where will he be giving that speech? In the district of a House Republican freshman congressman. In a district President Biden in 2020 won. That's putting political pressure on as well. So nobody's backing off. Instead, they're amping up the pressure. Now, here's what really matters. What's at stake here? This seems some kind of amorphous. What does it actually mean? This is just Congress doing their normal thing. It's a lot is at stake. Seven million jobs could be lost, according to Moody's, eight million, according to the White House. Recession, economic contraction, a spike in interest rates. Why does that matter? That's your credit card. That's your mortgage. That's your auto loan. That is at the kitchen table. What matters to you? Stock market plunge wipes out trillions of dollars in net worth. That's a problem as well. So where the people stand on this as they watch these dynamics play out? Well, the Washington Post had a poll this weekend, mostly, at least by a comfortable majority, 58 percent, actually back the White House position, separate the debt ceiling hike from spending. Only 26% say they want it tied to spending cuts. Here's the problem for the White House and Democrats. Who to blame? Congressional Republicans, 39%. President Biden, 36%. Again, connect that with the last poll that you saw. People back President Biden's position with almost equal amounts of blame. That, of course, is a big problem. That, of course, is what the White House is dealing with, Congressional Republicans are dealing with. Oh, by the way, not a lot of time to actually figure this out. The potential consequences, Poppy, could be devastating.
Huge, and that's why I think you're hearing a lot more, Phil, now about this sort of 14th Amendment argument, right? Is it even, is it unconstitutional not to raise the debt ceiling? And it's something... We're going to get you a chair at some point. No, 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 it's all right. I, I feel personal. <laughs> Personally, you, this, is, you're, you're, this is a problem, isn't it? This is, yeah. You're telling me something. No. no, but that's the issue is constantly people try and figure out what the off-ramps are. Right. And the administration has been very clear. The off-ramp here is congressional action. There's no other off-ramp. Yet, Unless there have there been discussions behind the scenes. What other alternatives are there? Could you mint a trillion dollar coin? That's been a big thing on finance Twitter forever. Or could you say that because the Constitution says explicitly that the United States has to pay its debts, yeah. that the debt ceiling, the law itself, the statute, is yeah. actually unconstitutional? Right. Let me just put it bluntly when you talk to administration officials working on this. They don't want to have to deal with this problem. Right. They don't want to have to game this out. They don't want the legal challenges. Yeah. All of that, massive uncertainty. A lot of people looking at Section 4 of yeah. the 14th Amendment. A lot of constitutional experts um, right now. Fill your chairs coming as it does. Lauren Fox joins us live on Capitol Hill. Lauren, good morning. Phil just laid it out really well for us. We are headed to maybe a constitutional crisis, maybe an economic calamity, or maybe they'll get this thing done. What are you hearing? Yeah, no, no good news so far, Poppy, but everyone is really digging in ahead of this massive meeting tomorrow. The stakes really couldn't be higher, but don't expect any resolution after that meeting tomorrow afternoon. This is really the first opportunity that congressional leaders are going to have to have this discussion about where do they go from here. The problem is that they just don't have that much time, like Phil was laying out. There are options, there are off-ramps, but to come up with some kind of massive grand bargain when you only have a couple of weeks to negotiate, that is the challenge that I'm hearing from lawmakers I'm talking to on both sides. There are some moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats who I'm talking to who say we could see a potential deal here in the works. The issue is that you simply do not have the kind of time you would need to get a two-track deal in the works at this moment. So what people are gonna be looking for tomorrow, what kind of tone is coming out of this meeting tomorrow? What is Kevin McCarthy saying? What is the White House saying in terms of how the meeting went? Yes, there are other congressional leaders that are gonna be at the table tomorrow, but Mitch McConnell is a very good example. He and the president have a long, long relationship of cutting these kind of grand deals, but Mitch McConnell's been clear. This is McCarthy's show. This is up to him and the president to figure out. Yes, they're gonna show up to the meeting. Yes, they're gonna shake hands and be part of this discussion. But at the end of the day, this bill is gonna have to get through the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, and that is the big sticking point right now. What can Kevin McCarthy bring back to his conference that is not going to turn him off from those conservative members in his conference? And if he brings something back, is he willing to really defy some conservatives in order to get this done? Yeah. Well, Lauren Fox, thank you for laying it out. We'll see where this goes. All right. Fired Fox News host Tucker Carlson reportedly has plans to, quote, bully Fox News. What we're learning ahead about that. And Tom Cruise has once again outdone himself. The Top Gun Maverick actor won the MTV Movie and TV Award for Best Performance in a movie, and he made his accepted speech, naturally, from the sky. Watch. <laughs> I heat. Thank you again for letting me entertain you. It's an absolute privilege. Let's see it's a movie. More CNN this morning to come after the break. A battle between Fox News and its former star anchor is spilling out into public view after his firing. Axios reporting that Tucker Carlson and his allies are, quote, preparing for war over the conservative firebrand's contract with Fox News. 
One source says Carlson, quote, knows where a lot of the bodies are buried and is ready to start drawing a map. His lawyer says, quote, the idea that anyone is going to silence Tucker and prevent him from speaking to his audience is beyond preposterous. Sarah Fisher contributed to that reporting as a senior media reporter at Axios. She's also a CNN media analyst and joins us from Washington. Uh, Sarah, I feel like we all kind of knew something like this was coming. Uh, Lay out the dynamics. Fox wants to probably sideline Tucker. He wants back in, especially before the election. What's at stake here? How messy is this going to get? A lot is at stake here, Phil. And the reason being, Tucker is one of the most prominent voices in the conservative party. He's who lawmakers depend on to do interviews and to carry out their message. And so whether or not he has a platform leading up to and during the 2024 election will have huge implications for all of the Republican campaigns. Now, where this stands now, Fox essentially wants to pay Tucker out in order to prevent him from going to a competitor. What Tucker Carlson wants to do is relieve himself of that strain in order to be able to maybe start his own thing or go to a competitive uh, outlet. The challenge, though, becomes Fox has a problem on its hands. You've seen the ratings have dipped dramatically since Tucker has been out. And so if they let him out of his contract, they risk him going to a competitor. Of course, there's one challenge here, and that is if they don't let him out of his contract, what Axios' Mike Allen is reporting is that Tucker is going to start a war. He's going to disparage Fox, encourage his viewers not to watch, etc. I was thinking about, obviously, TV's the sort of traditional platform, and I guess we'd have to see a copy of his contract to know how much he's barred from. But ostensibly, could he not start his own thing, whether it be a podcast, whether it be a streaming thing on the web, on social media? Can he not do any of that unless he gets out of the contract? I think they're fighting this hard because there are parameters, Poppy, that would limit his ability to do some of that kind of thing. But it's important to remember, if Tucker were to go to a direct cable competitor, let's say a Newsmax at the 8 p.m. slot, I mean, that would be detrimental to Fox. If Tucker were to go the Bill O'Reilly route or the Megyn Kelly route and start his own thing, it's not as direct of a competitive audience, but Tucker could still disparage Fox. He could still say, don't watch them, sign up and subscribe to me, cut your cable bill. You don't even need it anymore now that I'm no longer with Fox. And so that's sort of Fox's biggest uh, concern. I imagine whatever agreement they come up with will include some sort of non-disparagement agreement, which would mean that they, if they let him, they let him out of his contract, but he has to agree not to push his viewers and fans against Fox News. Yeah, it would be fascinating to see if the audience follows. I mean, even on Capitol Hill, like the power of his voice and his message and carries an extreme, right. extreme amount of weight. Um, one final, th- there's a nugget in your guys' piece where uh, Axios has learned that Tucker and Elon Musk have talked about working together. That, uh, I think, raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, what do you know about the dynamics of that? Well, Tucker is pretty big on Twitter, you know, almost 7 million followers, although I would be remiss not to note Fox is like three times as big as Tucker. So they still have a huge following, too. But Tucker has been pushing. I'm sorry. Elon Musk has been pushing to get the Twitter audience and to get the Twitter platform more inclusive to his point of all different types of viewpoints, including conservative viewpoints. And so it wouldn't shock me if the two of them were talking. Uh, One thing to note, though, you'll notice Donald Trump still has not returned to Twitter. And I don't know the reason exactly for that. Other than that, of course, he still has Truth Social. But you can imagine that maybe Tucker's not the only person who's trying to think about what their Twitter strategy is. And talking to Elon Musk makes sense. All right, Sarah Fisher, this is going to be a lot to watch playing out for sure. Thanks so much. For sure. Thank you. New rules expected from the Biden administration this morning that would force airlines 
to pay passengers for what are deemed controllable flight cancellations or significant delays. So that obviously wouldn't include weather. This comes after the travel meltdown in December that impacted tens of thousands of flights. The White House is proposing airlines would be required to cover meals, hotel expenses, ground transportation, rebooking. President Biden will announce the new plan a little bit later this morning. I feel like that's got a lot of support. Yeah. yeah. I just think there's going to be a big debate over what What's is controllable. controllable. Yeah, that seems like a pretty we, wide open. We should have an airline executive room. on this. By the way, can I apologize to, to the amazing set team for what? wandering aimlessly over here? No, in the we last keep block. them on their toes on that, Monday morning. I'm used to just going to the North Lawn. Like, there's only one place to go. You put stage directions in. I'm an Ohio State guy. It takes a little bit. Get ready. We even have like a whole thing over there. Yeah, it's wild. It's a little <laughs> overwhelming. Um, all right, back to the news. Title 42, the pandemic-era border policy, is set to expire in just a few days. Now, the Biden administration says it's ready for an influx of migrants. Leaders on the ground say they're not. What lawmakers are working on. What we need is our system fixed, right. not this Band-Aid solution. investigators are looking for a possible motive to why a 33-year-old gunman opened fire at a Texas outlet mall, killing eight and wounding at least seven other people. A senior law enforcement source familiar with that investigation tells CNN that they're considering whether the gunman may have been driven by right-wing extremism. This as the state grapples with yet another mass shooting. Take a look at the cover of the Dallas Morning News this morning. The headline reads, Eight Lives Interrupted, Future Shattered untold more traumatized again and again and again in this country and front pages like that headlines like that editorials like that parents teachers citizens it's so normal now and that's so horrific we're going to be talking later to a hero um, who was one of the first responders to come in and try to save people whose son worked at one of the stores at that mall. And he talked about how he had to prepare and teach his son before going to work. Oh, just in case there's a mass shooting, here's what you do. Yeah, and it's not a normal conversation I, I was, you have to have with your child. I was reading some of his quotes last night and he was like, well, it was a, the good part was at least his employer had done some active shooting yeah. training as well. Yeah, I guess that's good. But how awful is that? Your employer has to do, it's just, I don't know. We have a lot more on all of this and this terrible, terrible reality. We also have a lot on Title 42, a Trump-era COVID policy that is set to expire on Thursday. The policy allows the U.S. to quickly expel migrants without an asylum hearing. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the U.S. is prepared for Title 42 to end, but some local border leaders say they're not. An official at the nonprofit in El Paso says his group expects an influx of people at the border. But in all honesty, I don't believe that matter, no matter how hard, much we are prepared, I don't think we're going to be prepared enough. My biggest concern right now is shelter capacity. That's a concern shared by a law. Now, he says the situation there is not manageable. Let's bring in John Sandweg. He was the acting director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, as well as the acting general counsel at the Homeland Security Department under President Obama. John, thanks so much for being here. I think one of the, the, yeah. the most interesting elements in talking to administration officials working on this at this point in time is they acknowledge there's going to be a surge, but even they aren't totally sure what to expect. What do you foresee happening when Title 42 expires on Thursday? 
Well, I certainly think we can expect a dramatic increase in the overall flow compared to historical averages. But in many ways, I think the surge has already begun. Uh, remember, the Biden administration's approach here is kind of a carrot and stick approach. They've created these alternative pathways to allow migrants who want to present asylum claims to make them outside of the border. So that's the CBP-1 app that allows people to schedule appointments you know, with their mobile phone or these migrant processing centers in Latin America. At the same time, though, they're modifying the asylum rules with a new rule that will go into effect on Thursday, the same day that Title 42 ends. That new rule has created some fear in these migrant communities that they will no longer be eligible for asylum because they have not made a claim for asylum in Mexico, the country they transited through. And I think that's driven a little bit of a spike in migration. And we've seen it over the last week, week and a half, where you've seen an uptick already at the border. I think what's also been interesting, you dealt with this during the Obama administration, and he faced, look, some criticism from liberals as well, some, you know, titling him deporter in chief. Senator Menendez, Democratic Senator Menendez, who has put forward a very comprehensive proposal to the administration about a month ago, we had him on the program talking about it, says he's been largely, quote, largely ignored by the Biden administration on this. Um, He said sending troops to the border is to score, quote, political points. You've got independent Senator Kirsten Sinema saying, I'm not hearing what I need to hear in my state and neither is the governor. Here's what she said yesterday. While it's wonderful that the administration is announcing things like a 1,500 troop deployment and these new processing centers, which will not be operational by next Friday, those are good things. Those are aspirational. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as operational. Rent the buses, hire the drivers, build the soft-sided facilities so that we can process individuals. We need more holding capacity. I mean, let's be realistic here. And that's what's not, we're not prepared for that. I wonder what you make of those critics. Well, listen, uh, the border is always a political football. And and during the Obama administration, we were hit on both sides consistently. And unfortunately, I mean, in some ways, if you're doing your job well, you're going to get criticism from both sides. But look, I think a lot of the frustration, a lot of the current problem, you, you have to understand the border is dynamic and it's changed a lot over the years and very quickly. Uh, but the threat we faced at the border for decades was individuals sneaking into the United States, you know, crossing the border with coyotes leading them in the middle of the night, Border Patrol needing technology, more manpower, physical infrastructure, walls to try to prevent those incursions. It's shifted beginning really in the late 2014 to 15, where everyone presented themselves, surrendered and made an asylum claim. And we had budgeted and resourced the asylum system to handle a very small number of claims. Yet here we are basically six, seven years into this, and we have not adequately resourced the asylum system so that we can process these claims quickly, remove those people, send them home when they present false claims. As a result of that, we keep creating more demand. Right. And this has there's no end in sight. So while the near term issue is how are we going to process the tens of thousands we expect when Title 42 ends? I mean, I think Congress also needs to ask itself questions about why have we not resourced the current threat, which is to the asylum system? And why are we so overwhelmed? Because we don't have enough asylum officers and immigration judges to process it. Look, Congress, when you're running for Congress and, you know, when you're running for reelection and, you know, for like Senator Sinema, it's easy to talk about, you know, detention facilities. You want to talk about those enforcement things. But the reality is the, the shortcomings of late has been to the asylum officers and the immigration judges who process these claims. And unless and until we fund that, uh, this isn't going to stop. John, in the 30 seconds we have left, Look, I think everybody can agree, the only thing everybody agrees on is the system is broken. However, the administration has had more than a year. They've known this is coming, right? Mm-hmm. They've been preparing for this. The uh, Homeland Security Secretary said they've been preparing for this for a year plus, more than a year. Um, have they done enough? 
Do they have other tools they could have utilized in this moment? I think we'll find out in a few days, right? I mean, look, the administration in the very short term needs to avoid those scenes we saw in the past of Haitian migrants camped out in El Paso under bridges, right, of shelters being overrun, of of children in detention, of overcrowded detention facilities, right? I think that's the near-term goal. Uh, Look, the administration, to their credit, has taken some innovative approaches, right? They've created these programs whereby people can apply abroad. They're changing the asylum rule, this carrot and stick approach. We'll see how effective it is. But at the end of the day, it's about resources on the ground and whether they can avoid those scenes we've seen in the past. And unfortunately, there's no way to know until they say they're ready. We'll find out in a few days. That's a really interesting answer. Director Sandwick, thank you so much. You've certainly had your experience with this before. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. A lot to watch this week. Now, the Wagner mercenary group may be backtracking on a threat to withdraw from a key Ukrainian city. The advances it says it's making this morning. We're also live in London this morning. What the royals are doing today after the coronation of King Charles. Well, this morning, the newly crowned King Charles III is inviting millions in the United Kingdom to support causes right at home in their local community. The initiative is called The Big Help Out. It's part of the coronation festivities. Prince Harry attended Saturday's coronation, walking the procession alone. He also left alone, and afterward, he did not appear on the balcony at Buckingham Palace or the rest of the royals to wave to the masses. But his older brother, Prince William, the heir to the throne, played a big role. He swore allegiance to his father before kissing him on the cheek. And a big concert celebrating it all last night. William had a special message about his grandmother, the late Queen Elizabeth. As my grandmother said when she was crowned, coronations are a declaration of our hopes for the future. And I know she's up there fondly keeping an eye on us, and she'll be a very proud mother. Joining us now is royal expert and host of BBC America, Sharon Carpenter. Sharon, uh, look, people have a lot of different opinions, whether they like it, whether they don't, whether they think it is dated, etc. But it is still quite a thing to see. And I think it was notable when William talked about how proud he was of his father. Absolutely. I mean, it is quite the sight to see. No one does pageantry uh, quite like the Brits from uh, the actual coronation service that took place on Saturday with the processions before and after and that uh, iconic balcony moment. And then yesterday's concert, last night's concert, was absolutely uh, epic. You had Lionel Richie there, Katy Perry looking stunning uh, in gold. Take that. We're back together again, a a British boy band from the 90s. And diversity uh, was really the name of the game. That was something very important uh, to King Charles to get across to the people that the monarchy is a reflection of modern-day Britain. And I think he succeeded. When you looked at the congregation uh, at the coronation service, you looked at the concert last night, and you saw that range of performers from all walks of life. I, I think he nailed it. Can I ask, Luke, as the American who probably pays attention to all the wrong things in moments like this, um, there was some speculation as to whether Harry would be included in the balcony shot. He didn't ultimately make the cut. What, What happened there? What does that mean, if anything at all? 
Yeah, he didn't make the cut and we were all holding out hope that we would see this family moment. They put their differences yeah. to the side and all be up there uh, on the balcony. It did not happen. So it was reserved for senior working members of the royal family and nobody else. So Harry was not invited onto the balcony. I don't see it as a snub. It seems to be in line with Harry's decision that he wanted to be in and out in 24 hours. So immediately following the service, he jumped into a car, headed over to Heathrow Airport, took that 11-hour our flight back to California and probably made it home just in time to kiss Archie uh, goodnight on his birthday. It was his fourth That's birthday. That's right. But I also wonder if the royal strategically wanted to keep the brothers uh, apart because mm. they are still estranged. They had no communication whatsoever at the coronation service. So I guess to reunite on the balcony could be pretty awkward in front of millions of people. <laughs> Given that the court given that the optics certainly put it out of touch with a lot of just normal folks, right, in terms of all of the sort of pomp and circumstance and gold and jewels. Today is part of it, and today's about helping. People don't have work. A lot of people don't have work today, and they're supposed to go volunteer, the big help out, right? Exactly. So it's a big uh, volunteering initiative. And apparently hundreds of thousands of people are going to be volunteering uh, today. There are 30,000, I think, organizations, 1,500 charities involved in this. Uh, and it's really to get people to get out in their communities and give back since COVID. Uh, volunteering efforts have declined and this could help uh, give it a boost. But uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales are going to be partaking in this themselves. They're going to be helping uh, at a scout hut in Slough in the UK to uh, really help sort of zhuzh up the house and make it look better and uh, varnish the doors and sand them down and, and that kind of stuff. They're going to be rolling up their sleeves. Uh, the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh, they're going to be at a puppy class for a, a guide dog uh, centre and some of the other royals are going to be out and about as well. The King and Queen aren't going to be making public appearances uh, today. They're probably a, a little tired from all that dancing to Lionel Richie at the concert last night. Sharon Carpenter, your enthusiasm for this is what's actually drawn me in you over the course it. of the last week. You uh, so I appreciate <laughs> you. you, your coverage, uh, and, and coming on this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you. We are getting new polling this morning on President Biden's job approval rating and a potential rematch with former President Trump. We'll take you into those numbers ahead. And what proud dad LeBron James is saying after his son commits to play college basketball and what it means for a potential LeBron versus Bronny, or maybe LeBron and Bronny <laughs> matchup in the NBA in the future. Could that happen? That's what he wants. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Oh, it's just a proud moment to, to see my son uh, go to college, and he's the first one to go to college. And uh, today was a proud day. Uh, I, I couldn't lose today. No matter the, no matter the outcome of this game, I couldn't lose today personally. So. But I'll take this, uh, this cherry on top with this dub, though. As <laughs> LeBron James sharing that proud dad moment. His older son, Ronnie, becoming the first person in his family to attend college when he goes to USC. Ronnie announced Saturday that he will attend the University of South Southern California and play for the Trojans basketball team. Joining us now is Coy Wire. Coy, you can hear the pride in LeBron's voice. Yeah. You can also hear the sadness in mind that he chose SC over Ohio State, which felt very personal. <laughs> also feels personal that you're always the one who's on when something bad happens to Ohio State. <laughs> to your butt we're guys. talking. Yeah. I just get Alabama you, just gets replaced with Ohio State here. With oh, the Buckeyes. We're willing. Yeah. Yeah. Who are we, Pop? You're always talking about uh, everyone else's school. But if you didn't know, Phil Mattingly was a baller, a baseball player for the Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> were you LeBron, really? Yes. How did oh, yeah. I not know this? Google it. 
Google it. <laughs> hey, LeBron is an Ohio State Buckeye super fan, right? So essentially, yep. Phil, they had 18 years to land LeBronny as a recruit, yep. but he will instead be attending USC for the Trojans. He's already a star, too, a top 50 player coming out of high school this year. Seven million Instagram followers alone, according to wow. On3Sports. He's already the largest NIL valuation. That's name, image, and likeness value of any college athlete. Nearly $6 million already has deals with Nike, beats by Dre. But here's the thing. There has never been a father-son duo to play in the NBA at the same time. Now, Bronny is one step closer to the league. Technically, he did have to play at USC for a year before being draft eligible. LeBron said in the past he'd do whatever it takes to play with his son. He was asked about that after LA's Game 3 win. Listen to this. I'm still serious about it. Obviously, dude, you know, I got to continue to keep my body and my mind fresh. My son is going to take his journey. And whatever his journey, however his journey lay out, he's going to do what's best for him. Just because that's my aspiration and my goal doesn't mean it's his. So, you know, and, I, and I'm absolutely okay with that. He's also okay with a game four tonight on our sister channel, TNT, Warriors and Lakers. L.A. leads that series two games to one. LeBron is so proud, though, Phil and Poppy, of course. Uh, you know, the cool thing about this, USC's games are played just five minutes down the road from where dad plays his games for I the Lakers. I love that. The dad's dream right there. Coy Wire, as always. Thanks so much, my friend. Yeah. Thanks, Coy. CNN This Morning continues right now. Investigators now believe the attack that killed eight and wounded at least seven others was connected to right-wing extremism. There's a guy who just had, he held his neck like this and it was like blood just dripping down. If we don't do something, it will happen again. It could happen to any listener out there at any time. The Border Patrol and the FBI working to determine the identities of the eight people killed when a driver plowed into a crowd. Between 20 and 25 migrants were sitting on the curb waiting for a bus. If you're driving that fast and there's people around there, there will be some sort of reckless, maybe criminal action. This is a hugely consequential week. In early June, a day will come when we're unable to pay our bills. Financial and economic chaos would ensue. President Biden has determined that he doesn't want to negotiate on this. We have to avoid default, period, full stop. On the front lines in the east, Russian forces are increasing their attacks on Bakhmut. A very public rift between Yevgeny Prigozhin and Russia's defense minister. Ukrainian officials are interpreting that as potentially a turning point. Ukraine is doing everything it can to prevent Russia from bringing home a victory ahead of May the 9th. I here present unto you King Charles. More than 2,000 gathered in Westminster Abbey for this once-in-a-generation event. Coronations are a declaration of our hopes for the future. And I know she's up there, fondly keeping an eye on us, and she'll be a very proud mother. It is the top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. Caitlin is on assignment this week. Phil Maddenly, so happy to have you here. I haven't broken the place yet. No. I feel good about that. How, feel... how you doing with that wake-up call? It's great. That's what I always oh, wake great? up. Yes. Newbie. I'm one of those terrible morning people. Newbie. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> We're glad Phil is here, but we do start with very serious news this morning. Investigators are looking at far-right extremism as a possible motive for the mass shooter who killed eight people on, at this Texas outlet mall on Saturday. A senior law enforcement source tells CNN the gunman had a patch 
on his clothing with the letters RWDS, which police believe stands for right wing death squad. We are told he also had a lot of social media posts that related to white supremacy. Video obtained by CNN shows the gunman calmly got out of his car. They just opened fire on shoppers outside of the H&M store. We froze that video right before he pulls the trigger. But in 11 seconds from the first shot fired, we counted at least 24 gunshots. Here's how witnesses described the rampage. My daughter and I were eating inside of the, the fat burger uh, where we started to hear a commotion outside and you started seeing the people run. And then uh, you started to hear the gunshots. And then you could tell that, that it was getting closer because the shots were getting louder. I just felt like four people were running behind me. So I turned around and I saw two ladies rushing towards me. And then one was like, someone's shooting, someone's shooting. And then right behind her on the other side, right in front of DKNY, so there's a guy with, he just had, he held his neck like this and it was like blood just dripping down. In the beginning, we just heard the tail end of the shots, which was initially terrifying, but it was also just kind of startling because we couldn't determine that they were shots. And then after that, one of my coworkers yelled, there's a shooter. And then when we were in the back, all that we heard were sirens, just sirens on sirens on sirens. As we were watching, the shooter goes right across. He's not running, but he's kind of in a, a deliberate assault type move. He was firing. He shot about four or five shots as he proceeded toward the hamburger place. So I don't know who he shot. Uh, and a few moments later, we saw a police officer and come across in front of us like he was in pursuit of the individual. It was a um, guy on the phone and he was begging for help and he didn't speak a lot of English. I took the phone from him and told the operator, I started counting the bodies on the ground. I said, I've got one, two, three, five, six, seven bodies. We want to show you the victims that we know of, at least this morning. We're now learning the names of some of those killed. 20-year-old Christian LaCour was a security guard at the mall. His family described him as sweet, as caring, and a beautiful soul. Local CNN affiliate WFAA is also reporting the name of another victim, that is Aishwara Taikanda, an engineer who was originally from India. So much more to come. Joining us now is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, I want to start with, um, we have sources saying that authorities are investigating possible links uh, to right-wing extremism. What are we hearing right now about possible motive? So what we're hearing is he's got postings and he's in places where right-wing extremism is being discussed. Of course, there's the perceived right-wing death squad, you know, uh, initials patch, which is another pointer. But the reason they did the search warrant at the home and then the reason they rolled back to the search warrant at what appears to be a transient residence he was actually living at um, after leaving the home is to find what did he leave behind? Is there a note? Um, get his phone, any computers, um, any saved media, because they want to go deeper into where was he going here? And for instance, you know, from a behavioral science standpoint, what were the stressors in his life that might have been pushing him towards something desperate? Why was he out of the home into a transient place? Um, had he lost his job? Uh, what was his background in the army? So they need to peel back these layers. But something really interesting, which is look at Louisville. Lots of notes. Uh, nothing was released to the press about what he was saying. Look at the Nashville shooting, same thing. Um, we're seeing a trend towards that stuff going to 
the experts for analysis, but not being put out because they're trying to remove the payoff, deny the objective. If you want the attention and you want to be heard, and that's why you do it, let's drift away from that. That's really interesting. Given your former position before you worked here, do you think that's a net positive, or do you also see the transparency concern? Both. I mean, it's a three-level thing. Number one, from the behavioral science point, you want to know what are driving the shooters yeah. so you can get deeper into that area. Let's say it's right-wing extremism in a number of cases, which it has been. Look at the top supermarket in Buffalo. Two, from a transparency point, the public wants to know, and it's our job to deliver that. The third piece is the complicated one, which is what's for the greater good? Are we encouraging the next shooter by saying you can be famous and your manifesto, your ideas, your voice will be heard now as it wasn't in life? Can I ask, when we, you know, there's some pretty graphic uh, video photos. You, you see a photo of the shooter, tactical vest, uh, an AR-style weapon, at least one, perhaps more as He's well. He's got that and handguns. And handguns. What does that tell you about kind of his appearance going into uh, an act like this? Well, you look at somebody who may be coming out of the military who's a trained security officer um, in Texas. There's a couple of levels of certification, and he's got the second level, trained in firearms. But there's also this warrior complex that these shooters have where they get the tactical gear and they get the weapons that they wouldn't be carrying at work and they see themselves as some kind of warrior and they attach to an agenda because when you peel back to the bottom of many of these guys, it's because they were no one with no friends, with no group, and they attached to something they could be a part of and they were still failing in life and lashed out. So these are the accoutrement that make them part of something that they never felt they were. I'm, I'm interested in your take on Texas in, in particular. We heard from Governor Greg Abbott give an interview to Fox News Sunday yesterday, and he talked about the need for more funding for mental health, making those allocations. But we've also seen gun laws in Texas in particular really loosened in the past few years. Just a couple of them, 18-year-olds can now carry handguns uh, with no permits, no training is needed in Texas for using these guns, open carry laws. Um, and I think it's interesting, the New York Times made a connection yesterday saying that many authorities in Texas have told the Times they've seen an increase in spur-of-the-moment gunfire since September 2021, and that's when the state began allowing most adults to carry a handgun without a license. It You've seen a loosening of the, of the gun laws in Florida as well. People are attaching these agendas actually to politics. And tracking back for a minute to the uh, Louisville shooting, right. you know, this is the individual at the bank. Um, his note, which we did some reporting on, yes. um, although that hasn't been released, uh, actually said part of my agenda here was to show how a person with such obvious mental health problems could walk into a store and buy an assault weapon and go do something like this. It's, I mean, it's happened so much, yeah. so often. Um, Thanks for the great reporting. As always, we know you've got a lot more work to do, and I'm sure there'll be more reporting coming uh, based on my experience working with you over the course of the last several months. All right, also in Texas this morning, in this border city of Brownsville, at least eight people are dead after an SUV plowed into a group of people on Sunday. It happened outside a homeless shelter that has been housing migrants. Police say the driver has not been cooperating, instead giving authorities different names. Brownsville has declared an emergency after a surge of migrants over the past few weeks. CNN's Nick Valencia is there. Nick, have we learned anything at this point about the driver? Phil, the fact that the driver is not cooperating with authorities is making it increasingly difficult to get to that motive. But authorities had initially indicated that this potentially could have been an intentional act. 
They've since backed off from that claim, saying now that their investigation into this violent crash continues. All of it was captured on surveillance footage, with video showing the Range Rover that this suspect was driving, traveling at a high rate of speed before appearing to hit a curb and then appearing to lose control into a group of about two dozen migrants, some who were seated, uh, seated on a curb across from a shelter where they were staying at. Witnesses, however, though, describe something a lot more sinister, saying they believe that the driver intentionally blew through a red light before veering into them and plowing into them. Investigators say that they will hold a press conference later this morning. All of this, of course, unfolding just days before Title 42 is expected to sunset. That Trump-era border policy, which has a lot of people anxious here about the incoming migration that will come in the coming days. Phil? Next. You know, Nick, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, as you noted, has been, he's going to speak about Title 42 in about an hour. What do we expect to hear from him, given that border situation seems to be nearing a breaking point right now? Well, we've heard him be very frustrated in the last uh, recent months, and we could expect a lot more finger pointing and blame uh, towards the Biden administration. But it's preparations that the D uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has defended in a recent interview. Just take a listen. We've been preparing uh, for this for quite some time. We tried to end Title 42 repeatedly, and mm -hmm. we're, we're stopped from doing so by the courts. So we are prepared, number one. Number two, we have a migration information center that is specifically set up to communicate with state and local officials, and we have been doing so. press conference from Texas Governor Greg Abbott expected to happen about an hour from now. Meanwhile, that updated press conference here from police in Brownsville expected to happen in the 10 o'clock hour. Phil. Nick Valencia for us in Brownsville. Thanks so much. Now to this, it looks like Russia's mercenary boss is backtracking on his threat to pull his troops from a crucial battle in Ukraine on Friday. The oligarch, who's come to be known as Putin's chef, blasted Russian military leaders and accused them of withholding ammunition from his men. He claimed that he was going to withdraw his mercenaries from that key area of Bakhmut this week. He's now suggesting they will stay after being promised more supplies. For the big picture, our chief international security correspondent, Nick Payton Walsh, joined us on the ground in southeastern Ukraine. So was it, a, was it all a bluff, Nick? Yeah, Poppy, incredibly hard to know. I think only Evgeny Prigozhin himself, the Wagner mercenary boss, can answer that question. But fundamentally here, it's only really him that's been making statements about withdrawing and now saying he's got what he wants and therefore he'll stay. Remember, he appeared in front uh, of a collection of his own dead mercenaries behind him saying that they had died because of a lack of ammunition shells. So he's sort of been having this public conversation almost with himself, with the exception uh, of a brief comment by the Kremlin spokesperson saying that he was aware of media reports about it. But it's been a startling moment, frankly, of dissent inside the Kremlin ranks. Very rare indeed. And at a very important time, too, ahead of tomorrow's Victory Day uh, uh, parades inside of Moscow, where Russia talks about its victory over the Nazis. They had indeed almost uh, vowed to take the key city of Bakhmut, where Prigozhin is based, by that day. That's not going to happen. And instead, we've had this remarkable statement where he unilaterally said, we're leaving because we haven't got what we want. Quite what led him to change his mind here, we will probably never know. But it added to that general sense in the last 
week or so that there were increasing uh, members of Russia's elite making very vocal comments about how badly the war is going. This just ahead of Ukraine's counter-offensive, showing signs of being underway at this point. A bad message to Russian troops in the ranks, already experiencing low munition, low morale, certainly. Overnight, though, we've seen some Again, evidence of how Russia is likely to respond to any Ukrainian advances. 35 drones launched at the capital, Kiev. All of them taken out, but five people injured from the debris falling from the sky. And separately, eight missiles attacking the port city of Odessa, where one uh, night watchman in a warehouse that was struck was killed. So Russia continuing to lash out, sending these messy signals about dissent in its own ranks, and Ukraine staying relatively quiet on its military manoeuvres, but showing signs that its counteroffensive is underway. Poppy? Nick Payton Walsh, appreciate that reporting from southeastern Ukraine. Thanks very much. Phil? And there's some new polling that was rattling around Washington yesterday. President Biden trailing Donald Trump in the race for president. We'll break down the numbers. Coming up next. The ex-girlfriend of Tiger Woods is accusing him of sexual harassment. What we're learning about her legal claims, that's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Why would an 82-year-old Joe Biden be the right person for the most important job in the world? Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced than anybody's ever run for the office. And I think I've proven myself to be honorable as well as also effective. President Joe Biden brushing back concerns about his age and arguing his experience makes him the top candidate for president again. But a different story is told in these new numbers from a Washington Post-ABC News poll. It finds that Americans aren't really feeling the same. His overall job approval rating in this poll stands at 36 percent. It's down from 42 percent in February. In a head-to-head matchup against former President Trump, Biden is behind. 44 percent of Americans say they would pick Trump. Let's talk about these numbers because there's a whole lot here. And other political headlines joining us this morning National political correspondent at the New York Times, Shane Goldmacher, and CNN political commentator and political anchor at Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Morning, guys. Good morning. Just one sort of caveat to the 36% number. There are some who are asking, is this an, an outlier? Because it's off like five, six points from other polls. Also, this, this poll was a poll of voting age adults rather than likely or registered voters. But net-net, this is not good change for the president. Yeah, and at this so far out from an election, I think you want to look at the direction of a poll, right? Uh-huh. So the direction is down. That's a problem for Joe Biden. And really, it's like, it's the deeper in numbers that are more problematic in this poll, like which what? are questions about his mental acuity. The voters think that he just doesn't have it. And including a chunk of Democratic voters and a big share of independent voters. And the thing is, how do you fix a problem where voters think you don't have enough there to continue being president. That is a tough challenge to fix. That's not an ideological challenge. That's not a, we don't like what you did on this policy challenge. That's a, a fundamental challenge of who you are. Yeah, and it's, um, <clears throat> it's unclear how this is going to play out politically, right? I mean, the, the independents, they've got to be especially, I think, worried about. Um, and they've got to be especially worried about whether or not the, this attitude translates into negative votes. I mean, there were questions that were raised in his second term for Ronald Reagan, who at the time was the oldest person ever to be and to run for president. And uh, it, it was it didn't play out in a way that was negative. In fact, he won 49 states when he ran for reelection. Um, clearly, Joe Biden would like to replicate that, but it's not clear how you do that. I would also point out just as a, a sign of, of the kind of political uh, challenges that they have is 
people who are wise and who are competent don't sit on national television and say that they are wise and they are competent. There are other people who are saying it. And so they've got to figure out how to make that happen. Um, they're at the beginning of a very interesting season what, for themselves. What's the famous, was it Walter Mondale in the, in the debate about my, my, my opponent's I will not youth. hold my opponent's youth against me. It was Reagan. Yeah, yeah there you go. Even better. Yeah. I just have right. Minnesota on my mind. I will not exploit my opponent's <laughs> yeah, youth yeah. inexperience, he said, in 1984. There you go. Uh, so, Shane, like me, I think you've probably gotten the full rundown from the president's advisors as to why they believe they can address this issue, why they don't believe that this is the prevailing issue. And I think, mm -hmm. like you, I looked at kind of the crosstabs in these numbers and thought, okay, this is perhaps more of an issue than they think it is. Maybe the poll's an outlier, all those caveats. What do you think the campaign wants to do, needs to do, thinks it should do related to this issue that they don't really want to address publicly all that much? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing is that they are making the argument that he's not the only old candidate, right? That the front runner for the Republicans is Donald Trump. He's also would be the oldest president in American history should he win in 2024. But the poll shows problems with that argument, which is that only one, I think it was 1% of voters thought just Donald Trump was too old. So a big chunk thought just Joe Biden was too old. No, they would both be the oldest president, but that's not a thing that's that, resonated just yet. That stood out to me too. It was yeah. like 26% or something for Biden and 1% for Trump who were really concerned about it. What about Errol and the economy? If it is the economy, stupid, if that's what people vote on, right, then... It's not good for it's not good for uh, Joe Biden. This poll shows by a 54 to 36 percent margin. People think Trump did a better job handling the economy than Biden has done. Yeah. I mean, well, so here again, uh, a political challenge for this administration, because, you know, look, if, if he's he has every right to turn around and say, listen, which part of the economy do you have a problem with? Is, is it the three and a half percent unemployment? <laughs> you know, is, is it the inflation, which, while troublesome, is now headed in the right direction, which is down? Like, what part of this are, are you upset about? We're back to pre-pandemic levels at an, of employment in most regions in almost every state. Um, so he's, he's got every right, I think, to sort of uh, go out and, and tout his economic program. In fact, I think those age numbers really in some ways are like a proxy, that there's, you know, there's something that people are not happy about. There's something that has made people unsettled, whether it's the economy or something else. And they're maybe aiming it at age and saying, like, there's something wrong here. We're not sure what it is. We don't know if this is the guy that we want to steer us through this, this, this rough patch. Shane, as you look at kind of the macro issues that the, the Biden campaign, the president faces going forward, there's a micro but potentially very macro issue in the debt limit meetings that are com that's coming on Tuesday, kind of yeah. where that stands. How do you think this plays out? When you look at the two positions, they are completely incompatible. They always seem to find a way. This time feels a little different. Reassure me, please. I, mean, I, don't have, I don't have guaranteed reassurance <laughs> that they're going to find a solution before before the debt limit. But what we've seen is that this White House thinks that voters are going to blame Republicans for being too extreme. If you want to ask what's the answer to the age question, what's the answer to the debt limit question, it's that Republicans are too extreme. They've branded them as too extreme repeatedly since the last two years. And so that seems to be their approach here. First, they said they're so extreme by um, making any concessions. Now they're saying the specific concessions. There will be some kind of an agreement they have to strike. The, the Joe Biden original stance that we're not going to negotiate is not going to be the long-term stance. He already has breakaway Democrats saying that's not going to work. So they have to come to a table in some sense and find a way to, to, to meet the agenda the Republicans have, which is something to gain something, and Joe Biden to raise the debt limit. Errol, let me just, I wanted to pull this up to ask you about something that just crossed Rockland County, which is just sort of north of New York City here, has declared a state of emergency because migrants are being shipped from 
number of states, but Texas, Florida, up to state cities like New York City. And now New York City says it will take some of those migrants and put them in Rockland County. Yes. This is a huge issue, is it not, for this administration as Title 42 ends on Thursday? Some, some of this is um, uh, stage management and strategy um, that may have gone wrong because this is New York City saying, look, we'll pay the, the hotel bills for four months for these people. A stone's throw from New York City. We'll even provide them with services and so forth. The way it landed in those suburbs is like, oh, my God, they're sending all of these people here. We're going to de- declare a state of emergency. Um, the, the reality is it's, it's somewhat different from Texas sending a bunch of people here where, you know, no health screenings, no, no clothing that's weather appropriate, just kind of dumping them at the, at the doorstep. New York, re- right from the beginning, um, <clears throat> uh, was suggesting that some of the upstate counties might be good places for, for these folks to, to end up. And um, they're going to have to have a much better conversation. People should not be getting surprised in Orange County that all of a sudden 200 people, again, with all expenses paid and with services and so forth, are suddenly going to land on their doorstep. That's, you know, that's sort of um, making um, the problem that New York City has had for the last year one that's going to spread statewide and it's going to get everybody riled up and upset. And I think if that's the only policy that we're going to have in New York and other places, um, what a mess. Buckle what a up. mess it's going yeah. to be. Well, yeah. Riled up and upset. That seems to be the policy direction of a lot of things. Uh, right now, Errol, Shane, uh, mostly I'm just happy you're here. I was going to steal your reporting. Uh, I call it as my own for the remainder of the week. Thanks, guys, uh, so much for being here. Also, a source telling CNN investigators now believe Saturday's Texas mall shooting could be connected to right-wing extremism. Next, we will speak to a Texas state lawmaker who has been trying to pass gun safety laws. Texas Governor Greg Abbott attending a memorial for another mass shooting in his state. This one held last night for the community of Allen, Texas, where a gunman killed eight people Saturday at an outlet mall. These are just some of the mass shootings that have taken place during Abbott's tenure as governor. While there have been calls for stricter gun laws after each shooting, Abbott has rejected those calls and instead has drawn attention to mental health. It's become a common refrain over the past few years. We all know that this is something that we must address as a nation, uh, but also as a state. And that is for all of us to do a better job to uh, address mental health issues. Too many Texans have lost their lives. The status quo in Texas is unacceptable. We as a state, we as a society, need to do a better job with mental health. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge. There has been a dramatic increase in the amount of anger and violence uh, that's taking place in America. And what Texas is doing uh, in a big time way, uh, we are working to address uh, that anger and violence by going to its root cause, uh, which is addressing uh, the mental health problems behind it. Governor Abbott has expanded gun rights. He signed open carry legislation. He's allowed for weapons to be carried on college campuses and in places of worship. He's he's issued executive orders bolstering and encouraging the reporting of potential threats. And in 2020, Abbott signed a law that allows Texans to carry handguns without a license or training as long as they aren't otherwise prohibited from carrying a gun. So what about mental health, that focal point of all of his responses? 
According to a recent analysis by Forbes, Texas came in last in the nation for mental health care, where more than one in five adults with mental illness is uninsured, and where more than 40% of adults with a cognitive disability could not see a doctor due to costs. Now, our next guest is a Texas state senator who has tried to pass a number of gun safety bills in recent months, but has faced an uphill battle in a Republican-controlled Senate and House. After Saturday's shooting, Jose Menendez tweeted, I'm tired of only talking about these preventable tragedies. We can't wait anymore and need to do everything we possibly can to prevent and stop gun violence now. He joins us live from San Antonio. Senator, thank you so much for your time. You know, we played the kind of uh, string of sound bites from Governor Abbott. I guess we'd start with the point that he's consistently raised and tried to bring up. When it comes to mental health, do you feel like Governor Abbott, uh, the Republicans in that House and the Senate have done enough given that they focus on this issue every time one of these shootings happens? Unfortunately, you know, it, it appears that using mental health is just a shield uh, in order to not address the issue of what's actually killing the people. Um, that shooter at the Allen Outlet Mall, he could have been as deranged as he wanted to have been, but without that AR-15 or some other firearm, he probably could not have inflicted the amount of damage and, and, and killed as many people as quickly as he did. Um, and so the issue, the very real issue, is that we have to take some common sense approach to gun control legislation. And, and, if, and I agree, we have to help people with mental health. We have to make our, our, our nation healthier. We're not doing enough. But we also have to do something about what's actually killing the people, and that is these guns, these high-powered guns. I mean, there's a reason we don't allow people to have grenades and bazookas, and, and these are weapons of war. And I believe these AR-15 uh, high-capacity uh, rifles are also weapons that belong in the theater of war. Can I ask, what, what's it like to be a Democrat? You're the minority party in a state where Republicans hold a lot of power, uh, and particularly on this issue. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any pathway forward for even some of the proposals you laid out uh, earlier this year, which are not dramatic gun confiscation, kind of the, the pilloried and or demagogue version of some uh, gun safety advocates' proposals. What's it like to work in that environment, given what you're talking about? Very, very difficult. Many of us uh, in the Senate and in the House, the last count that I looked, there was over 20 bills, common sense gun control bills. There, none of these are, they're going to come and take your weapons. These are things that under the orders, like the, what we call extreme risk protective orders, also known as red flag laws, where someone's deemed to be a danger to themselves or someone else, and through a due process that they would have their guns temporarily removed. Safe gun and ammo storage. What is so controversial about that? Requiring that your kid doesn't get a gun. We've had several things where toddlers have shot themselves recently. Background checks. Make them universal. Make them mandatory. Get a mandatory health information for adolescents 16 years of age or older. Uh, raise the age. Why is it you can buy uh, an AR-15 at 18, but you can't buy a handgun? How does that make any sense? And then, you know, if there's a gun involving a crime, that we would require some more information. Most of these crimes with these shooters, one of these laws would have prevented them having access to these firearms. No one is trying to take weapons from law-abiding, responsible citizens. It is these people who should never have these weapons in the first place that we want to make sure they don't have. 
Can I ask, when you, after one of these tragedies, of which there have been far too many in your state and around the country, uh, seemingly weekly, sometimes it feels like daily, what do you talk to your colleagues across the aisle about that we don't see? And I come at this from a place of, I hope some prayers have a lot of validity for me as a person of faith. I don't dismiss that. Um, but what, what are the conversations like? Do you feel like when you talk behind the scenes that there's perhaps a path forward that we don't see publicly? I hope so. Um, we, we treat each other like human beings. We have coffee together. We'll, we'll break bread together. We will have conversations about our families. And, and we will empathize for any one of our colleagues who has a tragedy in their community, uh, as we should. Uh, but we, I wish, and, and my hope and prayer is that they can take more into consideration the real effects of doing nothing rather than the political cost of, of bucking the NRA or some other extreme gun group. Um, you know, I, I think they should forget about the, the governor's statements about making the status of what a Second Amendment sanctuary state, whatever that means. Um, we have got to actually think more about our constituents and how do we make Texas and our nation a safer place for all children. These little children who are um, having their lives cut down way too early and it, it, they, they don't have a political party or ideation. They, they don't have a, a bone to pick. They can't even vote. And yet we're having to we're picking and choosing. Some of us are picking and choosing whether we defend the Second Amendment uh, and, and try to blame all these issues on mental health. Uh, and we're as Democrats, we're proposing common sense gun solutions. We're not telling anyone that they have to all empty out their gun lockers. We're not doing any of that. This is just about trying to address the very real issue, trying to get our heads out of the sand and, and trying to have a conversation. Why can't we even have a debate about these bills? We should be debating these bills. We should be talking about this. I mean, if this were any other tragedy, we would be having the conversation and we need to be having it. Yeah, certainly need to be having it. would certainly like to watch that debate as well. Texas State Senator Jose Menendez, thanks so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Such an important Thank you for the invitation. Such, such an important conversation. Well, President Biden holding a high stakes meeting with congressional leaders tomorrow to try to reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling or at least get somewhat on a similar page to avoid a catastrophic default. Some Republicans are promising to oppose any deal without major spending cuts. We'll be joined here at the table by Republican Senator Bill Cassidy just ahead. And the TikTok trend that helps you build up your wardrobe without hurting your wallet. We're not ready for this. I found the best Louis Vuitton dupe and I'm so freaking excited. We're not ready for this. I found the best Louis Vuitton dupe and I'm so freaking excited. I wear this literally all the time. She's very well loved. This is gonna run you though, like $2,200. I think it's $2,250 to be exact. So here's what it looks like. And then here's the Amazon dupe. But first off, a quick disclaimer, TikTok, please don't take down this video. These are dupes, they're just lookalikes, they are not replicas, they are not counterfeit, they're not fake. 
I'm not sure I know the difference, but someone is here to answer that for us. There was a time when no one would openly brag about having a knockoff purse or watch. That is changing, at least on TikTok. Seems like there is a knockoff or a dupe for just about everything. Now some brands might be under pressure to reconsider price and strategy. Our CNN business reporter Nathaniel Meyerson is here. I am so not convinced. Those are fakes. They are knockoffs. They are illegal. Convince me otherwise. Yeah, we're going to convince you otherwise. So uh, dupes are uh, cheaper versions of higher-end uh, premium brands. So here's an example. Lululemon leggings usually cost about 100 bucks. This is one you can find on Amazon, similar leggings for $27. Here we have some Ugg boots, usually about 150 bucks. These are 30 40 dollars. And then very popular with bags. Uh, this is a, about a $2,200 Bottega bag. Here on, she found this on Amazon, $33. Okay. That is the Bottega Veneta style, but it doesn't, I guess, have a tag on it. But the Louis Vuitton one we just saw clearly had their print on it. How is that not a copy? So, okay, so the big difference between knockoffs and, and uh, dupes is that knockoffs are usually counterfeits or they're it's stealing intellectual property or they're trying to be deceptive. Dupes are, are kind of the whole point of is the whole point of it is you're bragging about saving money on a real on a real brand. So uh, the so and this is being driven by TikTok and the rise of social media. So dupes have about three point five billion views on on TikTok. Uh, Google Google search. You look at Google trends over the past few years really started to jump. So it's it is it is. Uh, knockoffs for the digital age. Can I see the next tab, popular dupes? Yes, the popular dupes. Okay, okay so the cl we have the cloud couch. Um, obviously, Lululemon, very popular. This one is super popular, the Dyson hair styler, perfumes, uh, okay. all sorts of per perfumes. Um, what are the luxury companies doing about this? So Lululemon is addressing this head on. There are about uh, 180 million views of hashtag Lululemon dupe. So they said, why don't you come bring in you, the, the fake, uh, uh, you know, dupe. fake, fake dupes. Um, you can swap them in for free and you can get uh, these very popular Align high rise pants. Wait, you buy a fake one for 20 bucks, bring it in and get $100 ones? They, they think that if you try on the real ones, you're not going to go back. But you get them for free? You get them for free. And they're going to be doing events in Shanghai and London. Okay. Daniel Meyerson, thank you. Appreciate it. Phil. We're going to get you there, Poppy. We're, you're going to be, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to there. get you into this story. knockoffs like on Canal Street in New York City. I definitely went there in college and bought a lot of them. Yeah. I don't see the difference, but I'm fascinated by the He trend. literally just explained it all to you. <laughs> they have a new get, name. you got to get on TikTok. I am not on TikTok. Fine. Okay, Phil. All right, moving on. All right, new court documents show that Tiger Woods' ex-girlfriend is accusing him of sexual harassment. We'll break down what she is alleging coming up next. And law enforcement is working this morning to identify eight people killed when a driver plowed into a crowd of migrants outside of a shelter in Brownsville, Texas. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. New court documents show the Tiger Woods' former girlfriend is now accusing him of sexual harassment. Erica Herman had a six-year relationship with him. She's now accusing him of pursuing a sexual relationship with her while she was working at his South Florida restaurant. She says he then gave her an ultimatum, sign a non-disclosure agreement or be fired. Tiger Woods has not responded to CNN's request for comment. Joining us now is attorney Nancy Erica Smith. She represented former Fox News host Gretchen Carlson in her 2016 lawsuit against Roger Ailes. Good morning. It's good to have you. Good morning. Appreciate it. So uh, Herman's attorney, Benjamin Hobas, notes in this court filing here, a boss imposing different work conditions on his employee because of their sexual relationship is sexual harassment. Where do you think this goes? Uh, well, I think hopefully this goes that she's allowed to discuss her own life and, and have access to the courts, which is a constitutional right that we all have. Um, the Speak Out Act uh, prohibits pre-dispute NDAs, non-disclosure agreements for sexual harassment and sexual assault. So, you know, we don't know what her specific allegations are because she's afraid to say them publicly because he could sue her in secret arbitration. And that that rule, getting rid of that secret arbitration being mandated, is largely because of the work of former Fox News host Gretchen Carlson and what she got done in Congress. Obviously, you represented her, but it makes yes. it has made a significant difference already. It has because NDAs allowed Roger Ailes and Weinstein and Epstein and Cosby and O'Reilly to harass again and again and again. And some of those women weren't even allowed to have a copy of their own NDA. So and I represented some Weinstein victims. So it's, it totally allows abuse of women to continue over and over and over again. Can I ask, what was so fascinating about that law is just how fast the invocation of it started to kind of come into the mainstream, right? I covered Congress for a long time. Sometimes laws take years, if not longer, to actually see it. People immediately started utilizing it. Has that utilization actually had tangible effects over the course of a trial or of an effort like this? It's absolutely had tangible effects. It's harder for corporations to keep abusers now that they can't silence women. Silencing women allowed abuse to continue, continue, continue. And now it can't. And I think the Speak Out Act happened so quickly because we worked so hard on another law that Gretchen helped is the ending forced arbitration in sexual harassment and sexual assault cases. So we, which is another silencing. Arbitration is secret and you're not allowed to go to court and you don't get a jury. And most of the uh, arbitrators are former judges, white men. <laughs> so it, it's not a jury of your peers and it's a fixed system that hurts victims. And Cornella studied it and showed it. So I think fighting to end forced arbitration paved the way to the Speak Out Act to end NDAs. Yeah, it's totally fascinating. Um, the former president uh, obviously uh, decided not to testify. It's E. Jean Carroll's battery and defamation trial against the former president. Says he won't testify even after he was accused of raping the former magazine columnist and then defaming her by denying that claim um, by saying she wasn't his type. Uh, we should note that the former president has denied all of the charges here. What stands out to you about what you've seen throughout the course of this trial so far? I, what stands out is his deposition uh, and his defense of the Hollywood, Access Hollywood tape, where he says famous and powerful men can assault women with impunity. Let, let's let people Play that, yeah. Sure. Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the... Well, that's what it's if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been 
largely true, not always, but largely true, unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. Uh, most notable is he says, fortunately or unfortunately. So it's actually possible in his mind that it's fortunate that powerful men can assault women with imp imp impunity. It's actually an incredible admission in front of a jury. Uh, also, his deposition makes it impossible for him to testify. It's no surprise. He contradicts himself regularly, and he shows the two elements that really rapists have in common, misogyny. 26 women are not his type, meaning they're not attractive enough to rape or assault. That's an incredibly sexist comment. And power and domination. You can see in the deposition repeatedly how he tries to control the deposition by abusing Miss Carroll's lawyer and saying, you're not my type either, and you're a disgrace. I've been a lawyer for 42 years. Nobody's ever talked to me. And I've taken depositions of powerful sexual assaulters. Nobody talks like that. It's like an admission of the characteristics of a man who assaults women, in addition to admitting it on tape and yeah. saying it might be fortunate that he can. It's going to be interesting to watch as that all plays out. Uh, Nancy Erica Smith, thanks Thank so much you. for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. I just don't understand these Republicans that want to just pray and do absolutely nothing. Our country and our state is burning down because we have these guns in the hands of people that shouldn't have them. It's a chaos that is wholly created by the Republican Party and the NRA. We can stop it and we can stop it now, but we don't have anybody with the political will to do it. Well, good morning. It is the top of the hour. We are very glad that you're here with us this morning. We do begin with new details emerging about the gunman who killed eight people Saturday at a Texas outlet mall. Investigators are looking into his far-right social media posts and a patch he was wearing during the massacre. And there was another tragedy in Texas that is currently under investigation. Eight people are dead after an SUV slammed into them near a shelter for migrants. We have surveillance video of the deadly wreck. And the Republican governor of Texas is about to speak as his state braces for Title 42 to expire. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. And that is where we begin the tragedy in Texas this weekend, putting a spotlight on two of America's most divisive issues and our nation's failure to do much about them, the border crisis and mass shootings. Eight people are now confirmed dead after an SUV plowed into those people near a shelter for migrants Sunday in the border city of Brownsville. And the day before that, eight people were killed in a mass shooting at an outlet mall on the other side of the state. Investigators are looking into whether the gunman was motivated by far-right extremism. Now, an image of the shooter's body shows him wearing all-black tactical gear. A source tells CNN he had a patch on his clothing with the letters RWDS, which police believe stands for right-wing death squad. He also apparently had a lot of neo-Nazi and white supremacist social media posts. We're now hearing from a survivor who hid inside a bathroom closet with 12 other people. And the gunshots just, it sounded like a war zone. It, it was horrifying and it felt like you were in a dream, like just shock and but we were in a bathroom closet and we were um, just in the closet trying not to be heard, crying, praying. 
people were trying to call 911. We couldn't dial out. Um, I just remember thinking, oh God, he's coming in here next. And when I was crouching down, like, I hope we don't get hit by a bullet. And then the store associate saved our life. I can't talk about that part. I want to find her. It's horrifying. CNN senior national correspondent Ed Lavendera is live at the scene. And Ed, we've heard the stories. What more are we learning at this point? Well, we have been reporting that the, the suspect in this case is 33-year-old Mauricio Garcia, a senior law enforcement source, uh, and has now been confirmed by the lead agency investigating this attack. The Texas Department of Public Safety uh, says he lived uh, in, in Dallas and, and came here um, and that, as you mentioned off the top there, they are investigating uh, this part of his life where these connections to uh, right-wing extremism. Uh, they had found on his uh, body a, an insignia that with the initials RWDS, which stands for right-wing death squad. Now, how that plays into a motive uh, in, in this case and why it meant that he picked this place to carry out this horrifying attack is not clear right now. Uh, right now at this moment, uh, the governor of Texas is joined with the uh, director of the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, at a press conference or a press event in Austin, Texas, having nothing to do with this, has to do with the uh, Title 42 and immigration issues. What is astounding in all of this since the shooting happened, investigators have not taken any questions about what transpired here uh, at this uh, outlet mall in Allen, Texas. Eight people were killed. We do note uh, two of the victims. One of them is 20-year-old Christian LaCour, who worked here at the mall as a security guard and uh, CNN affiliate WFAA here in Dallas reports that another young woman by the name of Ashwaya uh, Taticonda is also uh, one of the victims, but we don't know uh, much else beyond that. But here in this community, as you can see, the memorial that has been uh, put up over the weekend, many people searching for answers, trying to figure out how all of this could unfold, uh, all of this could have un unfolded here. Um, and those, the stories, as you heard from that one witness, have really been harrowing. And we're watching in real time and have watched over the last couple of days so many of the witnesses who were close to this, the survivors, really processing the magnitude of the ordeal that they experienced here on Saturday afternoon. Uh, it is actually heartbreaking to watch so many of these people uh, deal with that as they talk about what they witnessed and, and the pain and the, and the horror that, that they experienced here at, at this outlet mall. Um, there was one witness, uh, Phil and Poppy, that we spoke with who uh, described uh, some of the initial moments after the gunfire erupted um, and as we've been able to piece together some of the movements of this gunman as he made his way through the parking lot, essentially moving around uh, a central building in the parking lot of, of this outlet mall, uh, one witness described seeing the gunman pass by the store that he was uh, hiding in, walking deliberately uh, and quickly uh, to on the other, uh, other, another end of uh, the building, but shooting downrange, as the person described. And we know that in that area where he was, this witness described shooting, um, there were several victims. And then that witness described uh, the police officer following behind and then shooting and killing him just a few moments after. Uh, Ed Levendera, stick close by. We are currently monitoring the remarks from Governor Greg Abbott in Austin. Uh, those remarks about Title 42, if we get any new information or details about the two tragedies that occurred over the course of the last 48 hours down in Texas, in Governor Abbott's state, we'll certainly bring that to you. Uh, the governor speaking now. We're going to keep monitoring that. Ed will stick by as well. Bobby. 
Yeah. All right. One of the first responders on the scene on Saturday in Texas in that tragic mass shooting was a former off army and police officer. His name is Steven Spainauer, and he was rushing to the mall after he got a call from his son who worked at the H&M there when the gunman opened fire. Thankfully, his son, Freddie, who's 25 years old, was not harmed. Stephen joins us now. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Poppy. Really a terrible morning for you, for your family, for your entire state in this country. As I understand it, you found a child alive with a mother dead protecting that child. Is that right? Yes, I, yes, I did. It, it, it's pretty horrific what I saw. Um, I didn't go with the intent of being a first responder or, or helping anybody. I went to find uh, my, my son. I was surprised when I drove into the mall that uh, it was um, the parking lot was empty. People were still sheltering in their cars. People were running away from the mall. Uh, and there was one man at the scene that had a connection to 911, and he was having trouble describing to them where he was at and what he was doing. So I just kind of jumped in there, gave some directions on where the shooter went. Uh, he gave me a description, and then I started trying to take care of victims. And sadly, the first individual I went to was, uh, and I don't want to be too graphic, but she was, uh, she was not able to be saved. I couldn't save the second guy. The third guy actually expired while I was trying to do chest compressions. Uh, the child the child came out from under what I believe was the mother. It might have been a relative. I, I don't know how the relation is, but was started to wander around asking for help, saying, Mom, Mom, Mama, Mama. So I just scooped the child up and took him about 15 feet away so he, he or she couldn't see what was going on. I, there was so much blood on the child, I couldn't tell the sex. I just asked, are you okay? Checked for wounds. I, the first Allen police officer pulled up, and he said, good God almighty. I said, take the child. Is he hurt? I said, I don't care if he's hurt or not. Take him because he doesn't need to be here. So thankfully, the Allen Police Department, this was not a Uvalde situation. The first responders in Allen, Texas, the paramedics, the police officers, are truly the heroes. What you just described, it, it's unfathomable. Someone dying as you're trying to save them and a child so covered in blood that you don't know, you know, if it's a boy or, or, or a girl at first. Also, the worst nightmare for a parent is to get a call like you got from your son, Freddie. What, what was that like? Well, you know, we talked after Uvalde. He had excellent active shooter training from H&M Clothiers. Uh, I can't say enough about what they've done to prepare their staff. He's truly the hero because he was in the break room. He said, if I'd have been in behind the window that was shot out by the gunman, I wouldn't be here. He got his staff and his employees into the break room. They took one of the victims shot outside into the store and took care of that victim while they were waiting to be extricated by the SWAT team. So those store employees did what they were supposed to do by locking their doors and having an active shooter plan in place, something I discussed with him many times, absolutely worked. And I know people were concerned about the response time, but, you know, when you, you're a 911 operator, and I've been there, and you get all these calls, that's not an easy thing to do to find out what, where you need to send your help. I'd like to know from you what you want to be done in your state and on a national level. And I preface this question just by letting everyone know, you know, you've said you are a big supporter of the Second Amendment. You're a gun owner. But at this point in your words, thoughts and prayers have to be followed by action. What specific action? Absolutely. Well, what needs to change? Absolutely. Absolutely. We used to have an assault weapons ban nationally. 
we can we can do that at the state level. We can put red flag laws in place. We can limit uh, high capacity rounds. Like I found uh, a live round next to one of the deceased victims. We can stop putting some of these weapons like M4s and AR-15s in the hands of people who don't need them. And I hear our governor talking about mental health issues. We're always going to have mental health issues, but if we don't do something about the guns, the people killing guns, then we're going to continue to have the same thing happen. It could happen to your family. It could happen to anybody that's watching in any state, in any small town or big city. And until we take some definite actions, we're changing the narrative about men, about it being just a mental health issue and start doing something about the guns. And you don't think, for example, an assault weapons ban, like we had in this country, by the way, up until 2004, you wouldn't see that as a violation of your Second Amendment right or universal background checks or red flag laws. Is that right, sir? No. Not in the least bit. I mean, we have put limits on speech that prohibits certain types of speech. Mm -hmm. We can put limits in place on our Second Amendment rights just as well. We've got to protect our communities and make sure that they're safe. And I am a big supporter of making sure that we uh, uh, protect our Second Amendment rights, but we can't do so at the uh, jeopardy of our public safety and our health and our families. Stephen Spainauer, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm so sorry for what you had to witness, and we're all grateful for what you did for those people. Thank you very, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the storytelling and getting the narrative out there that we got to make some change, and now's the time to do it. Thank you, thank you. That's incredibly powerful. Governor Greg Abbott is holding a news conference right now in Austin, separate of the two tragedies this weekend. It comes as the COVID-era policy, Title 42, is set to expire on Thursday. Now, that allows border authorities to quickly expel certain migrants. Meantime, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and the FBI are working to identify the eight people uh, killed when a driver plowed into a crowd outside a shelter in Brownsville, Texas. CNN has obtained surveillance footage of the incident. We want to warn you, it is disturbing. Now, we have frozen the video just before the most graphic moment when the SUV slams into the people waiting at this bus stop. It is unclear at this point if this was an accident or deliberate. Let's bring in CNN's Rosa Flores in El Paso, Texas. And Rosa, have we learned anything at all about the driver of this vehicle? You know, Phil, the driver is not cooperating. That's according to Brownsville police. But let me start with the facts here because the director of the shelter says that all of this incident was captured in his surveillance video as well. And he says that what it shows is about 20 to 25 migrants who were sitting on a curb waiting for the bus. And then an SUV that was driving at a very high rate of speed ran a red light, hit the curb about 30 feet from where those migrants were, and then plowed through the crowd. Now, according to this director, he says that some of the witnesses say that this was an intentional act. But I asked the director, based on what he witnessed in this tape, was it an intentional act? And he said no. Now, back to the driver. Police say he's not cooperating. They say that he has been arrested and is being held on reckless driving charges and that police uh, are ordering a blood test for toxicology. Now, here in El Paso, where I am, as you know, Phil, we've been covering this. There are several thousand migrants on the street, and here's what city officials are doing. They're closing streets because of public safety. Yeah, and as, as you know, Rosa, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is speaking right now on the issue that you've been covering so closely the last several weeks, Title 42. How is his speech going to be received on the ground there in El Paso, given the current dynamics? 
You know, Phil, here in El Paso and a lot of border communities, I talk to a lot of people and they're usually in one of two camps. They either say that Governor Abbott is militarizing the border. And as you look around, there are thousands of migrants here that are already in the United States. And so they point to that and say, look, Abbott is spending billions of Texas taxpayer dollars and nothing is working. And then the other camp uh, of individuals that I talk to say, you know what, at least he's doing something. At least he's trying something. Phil? Yeah, it's, uh, there's no easy answer on this one. We're going to see a lot of this this week. Rosa Flores will be there every step of the way. Thanks so much. Here in New York, protests over the death of Jordan Neely are intensifying. They are even flowing onto some subway tracks. The homeless street artist died Monday after he was put in a chokehold on the subway. He reportedly had been shouting at passengers beforehand. We've also learned the identity of the man who held Neely in that chokehold. His attorneys identify him as a 24-year-old Marine veteran named Daniel Penny. Omar Jimenez joins us live from an Upper East Side subway station where the, literally these protests have, have spilled on to the tracks. Uh, yeah, Poppy. I mean, 13 people have been arrested after protests over the killing of Jordan Neely spilled onto the subway tracks at the station behind me over the weekend. There are protests that we've seen are really not in huge size, but pretty consistently and scattered over the course of the city since this happened last week. Now, Neely was known as a Michael Jackson impersonator, but had fallen on hard times in recent years. A law enforcement source told CNN he had been arrested over 40 times for things like jumping the turnstile, but also in at least a few cases, assault as well, though it's unlikely that anyone knew any of that history in the moments leading up to when this chokehold actually happened on this subway car again last week. Uh, but of course, all of that is what is driving a lot of the public opinion here in trying to figure out whether charges will actually be filed in this case, Bobby. And that's one of the questions is what will they decide to do with, with Penny? Are they going to, Yeah. Uh, will the DA um, bring it to a grand jury? That's a big question here. If you were charged, what would the charge be? Any Any word on any of that? So we're still waiting to find out. The district attorney's office has said they're looking through photos, videos, doing uh, witnesses with uh, interviews with witnesses should try and piece together uh, likely as much as they can to potentially bring charges in any one of those uh, manners that you mentioned. Now, the attorneys for Daniel Penny, the 24 year old identified as the man who did the chokehold, said that uh, when Mr. Neely, they claimed, when Mr. Neely began aggressively threatening Daniel Penny and the other passengers, Daniel, with the help of others, acted to protect themselves until help arrived. Daniel never intended to harm Mr. Neely and could not have foreseen his untimely death. And while we haven't been able to confirm what happened beforehand, a witness did say that Neely was acting erratically. But, but that statement about what those intents were, about what uh, not knowing that this could have ended in death is the crux of yeah. what has driven protests, because many have called this murder. But his defense, of course, is saying that he needed to do this and was not aware of how this would have ended. And I, I don't, we don't have cameras in every subway car, right, Omar? So we don't know. Yeah. So interview the witnesses with interviews are going uh, the interview witness interviews, excuse me, are going to play a huge, huge part in trying to figure out what were the circumstances leading up to this and how were passengers feeling yeah. leading up to this. OK, Omar Jimenez, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. And we have two big deadlines looming over Washington this week on immigration and on the debt ceiling. The Treasury Secretary trying to send a message to Republicans on that debt ceiling. 
It simply is unacceptable for Congress to threaten economic calamity for American households and the global financial system. That statement coming about 12 hours after 43 Senate Republicans wrote a letter this weekend vowing to oppose any bill that raises the debt ceiling without significant spending reforms. One of those Republicans, Louisiana's senior senator, Bill Cassidy, joins us live. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It simply is unacceptable for Congress to threaten economic calamity for American households and the global financial system. House Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen accusing Republicans of threatening the economy over the debt limit as President Biden is set for a pivotal meeting tomorrow with the four top congressional leaders. That clock, it is ticking towards a potential default. It could come as soon as June 1st. Now, over the weekend, 43 Senate Republicans wrote a letter vowing to oppose, quote, any bill that raises the debt ceiling without substantive spending and budget reforms, very clearly backing up House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's position. Joining us now at the table is one of those Republicans who signed the letters, Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, serves on the Finance Committee, started chuckling when I mentioned that Secretary Yellen was trying to deliver you guys a message. But you delivered a message to the administration this weekend with that letter. And for those who maybe aren't totally sure how this all works, you boxed the administration in with that letter. You essentially took an off-ramp off the table in the terms of the idea that perhaps the administration could make a deal with Senate Republicans. You're saying absolutely not. And not only is a clean debt ceiling uh, increase off the table, so too is the idea of something small. This has to be significant budget reforms. I would phrase it very differently, Phil. Please. Because the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans, excuse me, the Senate, and the Senate was never going to be a part of this. People would come to the Senate and say, oh, can you all work out a bipartisan deal? As you've done in the past. As we've done in the past. Right. The president has refused to negotiate with McCarthy. It is a total House Republican White House deal. And we had to send a signal. Mr. President, engage. We cannot help you here. It is between the two of you. So if you need a wake-up call that, the, that, that Senate Republicans and Democrats cannot pull these chestnuts out of the fire, this is your wake-up call. We're trying to catalyze his, his engagement. But there's, they're saying you won't engage. This is a deal between those two parties. And then they're saying no debt ceiling increase without significant so budget we're trying spending to, reforms. So, so we're saying, listen, this is what McCarthy's calling card is. Right. Now, let's just put it on the table. Whatever you think, the House Republicans have a certain position. McCarthy is, on, is, is riding an elephant. It, 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 he's got to manage that crew. Let's just be pregnant. All of them. All of them. Because one has the power to... Almost. Yeah. And so if you don't send a signal, listen, the game is really between you and a speaker who's got to bring all these Republicans on board, which is a very fractitious amount, then you're not understanding the political dynamic. Um, This letter was about understanding. Mr. President, show leadership. Understand the political dynamic, not as you wish it to be, but as it is. And let's make something happen. Do do you worry Perhaps McCarthy's position, the position of those House Republicans, is out of step with the position of the majority of the American people. I mean, Phil and I were talking earlier about the new poll over the weekend. It shows 58 percent, Washington Post, 58 percent of Americans say the debt limit and federal spending should be handled as separate issues. And that's what the White House is saying. Well, one, it's a house we have. But secondly, I think if you rephrase that, if you said American people, every month that we continue a student loan pause... That adds $5 billion to our nation's debt, 
and moves the kind of expiration date of, of, of borrowing authority a little bit closer. Now, the president's policies are actively making this worse. So if you phrase that question to the American people, the president's policies are actively making this worse. Do you think the president should stop those policies? You could also phrase it as, you know, totally cutting popular. taxes on the wealthy also contributed to this. Uh, so but so I, my, I, my, my point is how you phrase that question is important. I will also say, though, that the president's policies are actively making it worse. Okay. And so when do you have a point of leverage to get the president to back down? We are now hearing people talk about the 14th Amendment, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. I think a lot more people are Googling it. Uh, and, you know, part of it, the validity Hopefully of the public Hopefully the Treasury debt. Department's done a little bit more research than that. But yeah. <laughs> you know, average folks Googling it. The validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Let's listen to the administration talking about whether it would be unconstitutional not to raise it. Here it is. Are you prepared to invoke the 14th Amendment and blow through the debt ceiling? I've not gotten there yet. Is that a hard and fast position that the president will, under no circumstances, invoke the 14th Amendment? Look, I, all I want to say is that it's Congress's job to do this. If they fail to do it, we will have an economic and financial catastrophe. What to do if Congress fails to meet its responsibility? There are simply no good options. And the ones that you've listed are among the not good options. That is the Treasury Secretary and the President not taking invoking the 14th Amendment off the table. Do you think it's unconstitutional to not raise it? I'm not a constitutional attorney. I read Lawrence Tribe's article over the weekend. Me, me but too. He, but yeah. he's got a, pers a perspective on it. But let's just take what Yellen said, that this is going to be a fiscal disaster. What's been a fiscal disaster for families, not for people on Wall Street, not God bless them, but for families, has been the inflation that they are just eating up their buying power. Now, you can look at the inflation rate when the president took office, which was extremely low, and you can look at the inflation rate now, 6 to 7% per month, year over year. This is just emptying out people's pockets. We're asking the president, think about those families, pull back on some of the spending that you seem hell-bent to do, and then we can negotiate. Or I'm, I'm speaking for McCarthy right now. Right. Um, I actually think for the sake of those families, that's a pretty good place to be. But the, the kind of other side of it is, that's your position with the leverage being, if you decide not to come to the table, all those people who've been dealing with inflation, now their credit card interest rates are going to spike, their auto loans, their mortgages. And I think that's kind of the... And the, they might the, lose their job. That's the, the disconnect to some degree between the administration and House Republicans. The administration saying, this shouldn't be something to be used as leverage. This is the U.S. economy, which is bigger than just Wall Street. It's people. So I'd actually agree with you totally. That's why the president needs to engage. The president shouldn't be convening the four leaders because Mitch McConnell will say there's nothing he can do. He should have been engaged three weeks ago. He should have been talking to McCarthy, not with the House that the president wishes that he had, but with the House that he has, and trying to come to an agreement. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the risk of this. Yeah. I'm saying because of that risk, Mr. Okay. President, show up. Uh, and look, Democrats could have done this when Democrats had control. Yep. Hindsight is often helpful. Uh, while we have you, we want to talk about guns and this tragedy, just the latest tragedy, mass shooting. How many families, how many times have I taken my family to the mall on a Saturday, right? And look what happens. Eight people murdered. Um, you're a physician. You're a medical doctor. Do you think that the gun violence in America now is a public health crisis? Is it, a, is it an epidemic? Uh, it depends on how you define an epidemic. But well, one, do you feel it is? One death is too many deaths. And this shooting, I'm like, you're just heartbreaking. Now, we don't know the details of it, 
But that's why I was part of the group that after the shooting in Nivaldi, yes. came together on a bipartisan basis to attempt to address the three kind of root causes of mass shootings, gang violence, domestic violence, and someone who's mentally ill. The gentleman that spoke from Texas, what an incredible testimony. But as it turns out, those are the three things that it typically is. So you have to look at root causes, and the Evaldi response bill addresses those root causes. It has yet to be fully implemented. We need it fully implemented. Do you think that there's any, with the caveat that we don't know all of the details as to the why, um, what you guys were able to accomplish in the bipartisan deal was something that ha hadn't happened in decades. It was significant. You make the point, it's still being implemented. Is there any appetite for doing more on guns in this Congress? You know, um, in medicine, we have a saying, don't just do something, think. I think you have to first look and see what was the circumstance. Mm -hmm. Could it have been prevented? By the way, the federal legislation enables states to pass laws on their own. So I think it may be that it's actually the state action that has been set up by the federal. I don't know the circumstances, but that's part of it. Uh, and, and, and in response to the Nashville shooting, the governor of Tennessee has called for state action. That's right. And look what um, Rick Scott did in Florida after uh, the, the Park, Parkland shootings yeah. there. I would just, you talked about state, so let's end, let's end on your state. The CDC data shows that Louisiana had the second highest firearm mortality rate uh, by state. Uh, There's 2021, 29.1%, over 1,300 firearm deaths in your state. Do you want to see more done on this in your state? Absolutely. In the Evaldi Response Bill, we actually created funds for the states, such as mine, to have more, more resources to enforce restraining orders, for example. The, the, the husband who's estranged who walks in and kills his family. Um, now, he's already got a restraining order. He's not obeying it. So there's resources within that bill to address that. Mm -hmm. There's also resources for hardening schools. By the way, I'll point out the administration was slow to put those out. My superintendent of education said, listen, they're not letting us harden schools. I called Secretary Cardona. He goes, we'll correct that, but they've only corrected it for three states. So the clear message of the bill allows states to harden schools. The administration is slow walking. Um, we've got to enforce, we've got to enact that bill. Um, we have to let you go, but real quick, uh, if the control room doesn't fight me, um, you're known as a deal maker in Congress in the sense that you're pragmatic. You will sit down with people uh, from the other party. How do we, do you think we get out of the debt ceiling? I do. Before June 1st? Well, put it this way. Tell me, does the president show up? If the president shows up, history shows that we get out of it. But the president has got to show up, not just kind of rope-a-dope saying, let's have a show, let's have a photo op. He has to actually show up and go into the nitty gritty of how do you make a deal? Tuesday's going to be a big day. Yeah. Senator, thanks so much Thank for being you. here. We it's appreciate really nice it. nice to have you here. Come back. Thank you. Thank you all. New information this morning about what we were just discussing. The tragic shooting at a Texas outlet mall on Saturday. Eight people dead. What we've just heard from the governor. We just heard Greg Abbott speak, so we'll bring you that ahead. This just in to CNN, Texas Governor Greg Abbott just addressing the shooting that left eight people dead and several others injured at a mall in Allen, Texas. Governor Abbott put him focus on motive rather than legislative action. So first, obviously, we're extraordinarily concerned about the devastation that's happened to the families affected by what happened in Allen. One thing I know that the people in Allen, but especially the families, they want to know right now why this happened, how it happened. 
Those remarks come as we learn of the name of the second victim killed in Allen, Texas, is identified as Ashwara Thetakonda. Our CNN affiliate, WFAA, reports that Thetakonda was an engineer. She was at the mall with a friend when the shooting started. Her family says they plan to have her body sent to India. Her friend remains hospitalized. This week, city officials in Phoenix are set to start clearing out a major homeless encampment, but many of the people living there say they don't know where to go. Our Gabe Cohen has this report. Do you want to get into a shelter, sweetheart? At sunrise, Nettie Reed's outreach team enters this massive homeless encampment in downtown Phoenix, what some call the zone, one of the largest camps in the U.S. The goal is to get them off, off, off the streets. As of April, roughly 900 people lived in this sprawl. I just couldn't pay the bills, so I ended up homeless. This is where you've been staying. Rayanne Denny says she landed here after her husband died. What kind of stuff are you dealing with? Um, substance abuse, of course, because I just try to keep myself, you know, high so I don't have to deal with the pain. And the urgency is growing. I got two words for you. Let's go. Let's go. Soon, these people have to leave. We have to move fast. We have to gas up. We have to come up with a plan. A judge has ordered the city to permanently clear this camp, calling it an illegal public nuisance after a lawsuit brought by residents and business owners. This is our restaurant, and right across the street are the homeless encampments. Like Debbie and Joe Falacci, who have run this nearby sandwich shop for more than 30 years. It's just a complete lawlessness, uh, and it's getting worse. The lawsuit is one more piece of an increasingly polarized approach to homelessness across the U.S as more states pass controversial laws to ban public camping. Spell your last name. Some think similar public nuisance lawsuits will soon be used to try to force other cities to clear encampments. But then what? I'm scared, really scared. Fear, anxiety, worry. Stephanie Powell doesn't know where she'll go when cleanup starts this week. I don't want to wind up having to walk the streets again. It's hard because nobody wants to see the problem. The Phoenix area has roughly half as many shelter beds as people experiencing homelessness, a population that's grown 46 percent since 2019 amid an affordable housing crisis. And the zone's location is key. It sits right outside the Human Services Campus, a secure center that offers assistance like food, water, and health care, critical during Arizona's scorching summer. What could that mean for people? People will be more likely to die or be sick and go to the emergency room. So the city of Phoenix, scrambling to create safe options, is planning to lease hotel rooms and vacant buildings as temporary shelters and build a sanctioned campground with security and sanitation somewhere in the city. But it's a Band-Aid. And what happens if campers like Rayanne Denny say no? Where will you go? Probably just find some other place to set up, I guess. Somewhere less visible? Yeah, of course. And so some expect that a lot of the people in this encampment are just going to move down the road to other neighborhoods like we've seen in other cities. But Poppy, big picture, uh, advocates will tell you there is a housing crisis right now and solutions like a sanctioned campground do nothing to fix that bigger crisis. But with Phoenix's brutal summer heat approaching, a solution like affordable housing, Poppy, is just not going to come in time. That's yeah, not immediate, that's for sure. Gabe Cohen, fascinating, important reporting. Thank you. There were two NBA playoff games that came down to the wire on Sunday, but the two games on Saturday, absolute blowouts. So what's the deal with those big wins? Harry Enton, in his new segment, What's the Deal with Those Big Wins? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have this morning's number coming up next.
Kevin Durant, the Phoenix Suns, holding off the Denver Nuggets in a 129-124 victory. Two-time MVP Nikolai Jokic scored a franchise record 53 points for the Nuggets, but that actually wasn't enough. The Suns even up the series at two games apiece. Now, the tight game coming after two big blowouts on Saturday. The Heat beating the Knicks by 19 points. The Lakers crushing the Warriors by 30. So what's the deal with the blowouts? CNN senior data reporter Henry Enton dug into this. Uh, what's the morning number? Yeah. All right. So this morning's number is nine. I got Phil smiling. That's what I like to see you early in the morning. Low bar. Smiling. Uh, so NBA 20-plus point final margins, nine so far out of the 57 playoff games through, of course, the conference semifinals. And I will note this is part of a trend. All right, 20-point-plus NBA playoff margins. 20% of them over the last decade were blowouts. That is up from the decade before when it was just 15%, and the decade before that, 13%. So blowouts are definitely on the rise in the NBA playoffs. Any idea why? Any idea why? I will give you a reason why. Three-point attempts are way up per game, right? 60 per game in the NBA playoffs in the last decade. That's well up from 36 the prior decade, 31 the decade before that. And, of course, if you're having more three-pointers, attempts being up means it's easier to widen the score quickly, especially if one team gets hot and the other one gets cold, right? So you get these blots much easier. You know, if one team gets hot and they're shooting two-pointers, it's much harder to widen it out. And I want to bring this back to another sport, baseball, because I know Phil Just loves this Phil's baseball. Phil's here? That's right. Not figure skating for me? Not figure skating for you. I want to treat our guests with respect. <laughs> the NBA isn't alone in feast or famine. MLB strikeouts and a homer were higher, higher in the past decade than any other since the 1870s. So feast or famine is something that's becoming more and more across professional sports. Can I just say, to, to one slide back, Poppy and I, when we were talking about that three-minute spurt that the Lakers had, in the second quarter, <laughs> that really took the game over, which is exactly what you're saying. They're hitting from the outside, but also hitting in the paint. And What's it called when you do it outside the, the thing? Yeah, it's that thing. What's it yeah. called outside the, is that the field? It's a three-point line. Yeah, but what's it when you shoot outside. it from outside that? We're actually drawing this out. That's called a three-pointer. No, I know, but it's the called. The arc? Yeah. Oh, outside the arc? It's Jokic, by the way. I'm married to a Serb. Jokic. Wow, she's bringing her A game. Phil, you better up yours. Bye-bye, Phil. Eliminated, falls through the floor. This was fun, the one day I got to spend with you since you just canceled the next four. Wow, that's tough. Harry. Harry, it's a pleasure, my friend. A pleasure. It's good to see you. Thank you so much. Goodbye, Phil. Bye. Bye, He's going to come back, I hope. After a couple of Little League umpires quit over how they were treated by some parents. I hope you're nice to the umps at your kids' Always. I'm terrified of the umps. One league in New Jersey is making those parents try out for the job themselves. We'll speak to the commissioner of the league with that brilliant idea next. It's not called three-pointer. It's called, like, a, a field or something. Well, after two well-respected Little League umpires called it quits over unruly parents, a baseball program in New Jersey implemented a new rule to brush back angry moms, dads, and other fans. A Little League president is throwing a change-up, announcing... Is that a baseball term? So it was brushback. I'm very impressed by the I writing here. This is like, reading, it's really good writing. I'm just reading what they wrote. <laughs> we have good writers on the show. Announcing that unruly fans will be barred from attending games in the future unless they agree to call three games for themselves in order to see how challenging it is. Joining us now is Don Bazufi, the president of the of Deptford Little League. I think this was, was this your idea? It was. Loved uh, it. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I hope it works. I hope it's a deterrent. So. 
this is about a serious thing, like how awful parents can be to it, it, it can be, yes. And um, when we lost dedicated umpires over this, I knew something had to be done. So that's why we implemented this. Have you seen that it's gotten worse over time? I remember parents yelling at umpires mm. when I, I was a kid. It was never my dad. Uh, it wasn't me or else my dad would have beaten me. Uh, it's a joke. Um, but, uh, but I do feel like a, kind of across every uh, organization, job, people are treating people worse. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, I've been in this league 40 years and um, it used to be just yelling at the umpire and some expletives. And just a couple years ago, two, three years ago, we had um, a parent who came up from, uh, from one of the fields, irate, he didn't like one of the calls. So he came up to discuss it and we had one of our board members in the concession stand and tried to de-escalate it and the guy just punched him in the face, grabbed his cell phone, smashed it, and we pressed charges and he's now banned for life. Wow. So it's, it's, it, it's gotten bad, it's gotten physical. So that's why we're trying to make sure we uh, we want to we want to curtail it before it happens again. You also have to remember, like, what this is what we're showing our kids. Right. Kids exactly. don't do what you say; they do what you do. Right. And we're modeling this for our kids. So you're also this is an effort to help those kids. Too, exactly. Right? This, this, these are these are life lessons. We're we're teaching more than baseball here, and um, I'm sure that these parents, when they're home, they 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 demand respect, and then they come to the fields. And it's only, it's only a handful. Most of the people there were great. But when they come to the fields, they, they start um, abusing the umpire, expletives, and the kids are out there watching. And I'm sure they're confused. And, uh, you know, so we're losing more than just good volunteers. We're, uh, we're confusing these kids when we're, try- we're trying to teach them the right and way. And it's also embarrassing for the kids. Like, Very to watch your parent act humiliating. Like a- Yes, jerk the entire time. Can I ask you, you haven't had to actually implement it yet. Is Not that yet. correct? Not yet. How would this work? Because as a player, I don't want some parent <laughs> who has no idea how to ump a game, exactly. umping a game. So yeah. how do you actually kind of thread the needle here? Sure, sure. We don't, we don't want them umpiring. So you just want to scare them. Well, <laughs> I don't want to scare them. We want, we want to educate them. So what we're going to do, we're going to have a certified umpire. It's going to teach them field mechanics quickly, let yeah. them have an idea, and then teach them some of the rules. And we're not going to put them behind the plate. We're going to put them out in the field. Okay. We want them to get three games because I want them to get a bang-bang play. It might not happen in one day, but it will happen within, within three games. Totally. And, uh, you know, they'll see then that this is not that easy. And what do I call this? Oh, my, I'm going to lose some friends in the stands now. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like we want to open their eyes. That it's not easy. It's for the kids. And these calls, you know, they really don't matter. These kids are out there having fun. They're not complaining about them. What a novel idea. Let the kids have fun. That's it. Let the kids have fun. Don Bazzuffi, this is such a cool idea, yeah. uh, and I just like the conversation. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thank I appreciate you. it. I hope it makes a difference. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the Prince and Princess of Wales volunteering alongside thousands of people across the UK in the big help out. New pictures ahead. That was great. Thank you so much. Your time for your morning moment. This morning, the Prince and Princess of Wales volunteering alongside thousands of people across the United Kingdom in the big help out. That's what today is deemed. The nationwide initiative to help more than 1,500 charities is part of the final day of coronation festivities in honor of newly crowned King Charles III and his decades of public service. Now, William and Kate, along with their three children, are helping to renovate Scout Hut outside London. 
five-year-old Prince Louis, everybody's spirit animal to some degree, was happy to roll up his sleeves in his first royal engagement. Adorable new images show him pushing a wheelbarrow, driving a digger with dad, hopefully making faces and hand motions like he's done so famously, <laughs> which I love. He's your favorite, huh? He is, yeah. And your spirit animal. He's my spirit animal, or spirit child, I don't know what spirit it is. Animal. Spirit animal. Spirit animal, we'll go with that. Are you going to come tomorrow? I don't know. Am I allowed to? Yes! After you just dime me out on my mispronunciation of a two-time I mean, NBA MVP? It's the only athlete. Like, it's not even this that I'm worried about. Like, my buddies from home are going to kill me. <laughs> Trust me. I can't pronounce most things. We'll see you tomorrow right here. Phil promises. Stay with us. CNN New Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.